As you're taking your seats, you can grab your Bibles and open up to Genesis 20. If you don't have a Bible, we've got an usher, some ushers up at the front here. We're going to walk towards the back, and we would love to put a copy of God's Word into your hand, so you can just raise your hand up. They'll get a, a Bible across to you, and if you don't own a Bible, then just keep this. It's our gift to you today. Pray that it would bless you as you read it and hear from God. And we are, are back in Genesis for our um, mid summer series series. Um, just a two-week stint. And uh, then we're going to be back next week into the fruit of the Spirit again and, uh, and for the rest of the summer. And um, I, I've entitled this message, uh, Depravity and Divinity. I thought about entitling it Sister Wife Season 2. And this time it's personal. That was going to be the subtitle. Because, you know, you do it once and that's like, okay, this is a problem. You do it twice and now we're getting... Now we're getting real personal. And, and I think this, this passage, if you're familiar with it, we're going to read it in a minute, but this is where Abraham um, deceives a king for the second time, a ruler of a foreign nation, and um, he, instead of acknowledging that Sarah is his wife, he, he simply claims that she's his sister. And you kind of read this passage, and, and you're kind of stuck as you read it, thinking like, really? Like, again? Like, how, how did this happen again? Because the first time, it, it really didn't go well at all. And, and in many ways, this passage parallels that previous account in Genesis chapter 12. There are some differences, but it's fascinating that God, by the Spirit, wants to draw us back into a very similar account. And if you're following the, the kind of flow of, of the story, what you realize is that God has promised Abraham that he will give him a land, seed, and blessing, and it's not all yet in view for Abraham. And he's being called to walk by faith, and this continues to be a massive struggle. And right now, the, the kind of focal point of that promise that God has made to Abraham is the seed, the promised seed. And Abraham and Sarah are getting old, and so they're beginning to wonder when God's going to fulfill this promise of a child. Because at this point in their life, it is humanly impossible. And what Abraham does here, just like in chapter 12, is essentially he puts the promise of God in jeopardy. He, he takes matters into his own hand, and any time you fail to trust God and place your faith in him and you take matters into your own hands, it doesn't end up going well. John Calvin, uh, the reformer, in his commentary on Genesis, he says this, he says, in this history, the Holy Spirit presents to us a remarkable instance both of the infirmity of man and the grace of God. I really like that. I would simply add the word again. And I want to look at this passage from those two angles. The infirmity of man and the grace of God I think those are the two elements of this passage that are really being highlighted and in some sense contrasted with one another. But, but I want to ask this question, for what purpose? Like what's, what's the intent of this passage and, and what should we be able to kind of glean from this passage? Uh, yesterday my son got a, a new Bible, my, my eight-year-old son Caleb, and he was just thrilled. He just, he couldn't wait, he picked it out. 
and it arrived, and he opened it up, and the first thing he asked me was this. He said, Dad, can I, can I mark up my Bible? Can I, can I, like, use pencils or markers in there? And I said, yeah, absolutely. You just want to be, you know, you want to be thoughtful about what you're marking and why you're marking it. And he said, I just, he said, can you tell me where it says uh, those words, but God? And um, we had just finished last week sitting on my front porch, me and my two boys having a conversation about what I think is arguably the most, the most powerful and important passage in all of Scripture, Ephesians chapter 2, which, which lays out the fact that we're all dead in our trespasses and sins, we're hostile, we're alienated from, from the life of God, we're without hope in this world, and then it follows it with those two stunning words, but God. And I didn't know how, how it stuck with him, but, but in, in wanting to kind of open his Bible and begin to mark it up, those are the first two words. It clearly stuck that these were important words. And I, I opened it up to the passage and I showed him and, you know, he's like, okay, I'm going to go mark it up. And then he, he came back to me and he showed me where he marked the two words, but God. And, and then he said, I also marked another word. I went to mark it and my knee hit my arm and it poked a word. And so I just circled it, but it's the word Christ. So it's a good word anyways. And I said, that's a good, I, that's good. That's good. But then he asked me this question. He said, are there any other places in the Bible where it says, but God? And I said, yeah, there are. There are are lots of other places where it says, but God. But more than that, listen, sometimes it doesn't say, but God, but it shows us, but God. And and this, this passage here, it doesn't say, but God, but this is a, but God passage. This is a passage that that clearly shows the infirmity of man, the depravity of man, the sinfulness of man, but God. It shows us the mercy of God and the grace of God in such a profound way. This is a but God moment in the life of Abraham, and perhaps you're here today and you're looking at your life and, and you're needing a but God moment. There are times in all of our lives, listen, when, when sin becomes maybe entangling, it becomes consuming, we, we go down paths we never thought we'd go down, we get stuck in places we never thought we'd get stuck, we do things we never thought we'd do, but God is still gracious to us. I don't know where you are today, I don't know when you're going to get to a place where you're stuck and you're wondering, is there still grace left over for me? But, but I hope this but God moment in the life of Abraham is helpful to just encourage your soul and breathe life into you, maybe in a fresh way today. So I want to look at it through those two angles, but I, I want to kind of approach it more from the grace angle. And so I'm going to maybe tackle the text like this. God displays his grace That's what we're going to see. God displaying his grace. So how does God do that? Well, God displays his grace first through the stubbornness of our sin. Kind of sounds paradoxical, doesn't it? But this is actually where we see God's grace coming to the forefront. It is when we see the stubbornness of our sin. We'll just take this passage a little bit at a time. Let's begin in verse 1 of chapter 20. It says, from there... Abraham journeyed toward the territory, territory of the Negev and lived between Kadesh and Shur, and he sojourned in Gerar. And Abraham said of Sarah, his wife, she is my sister. 
And Abimelech, king of Gerar, sent and took Sarah. This all takes place shortly after the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. And you'll recall maybe from last week that Abraham had a kind of a front row view of the carnage and the wreckage. God had allowed him to kind of look over into Sodom and Gomorrah and see the utter chaos and destruction. It must have been just an awful, unimaginably horrific sight. And and perhaps that's why Abraham could no longer live where he was under the oaks of Mamre. Perhaps he needed to get away from the sight, the smells, that burning sulfur, the fire, and he needed to just relocate, and so that's what we see him doing. He moves into the territory of uh, a Philistine king, of what would later become a part of Philistine, kind of on the border of the promised land. This powerful king named Abimelech, he he lives there, and like we saw earlier in chapter 12 with Pharaoh, uh, he accumulates for himself a harem of beautiful women, and Sarah is still, at the age of 90, apparently this stunning woman who men in positions of power and authority want for themselves. So, this king approaches Abraham, whether it is him individually or he sends messengers. Abraham, he here is operating by fear. He believes that either Abimelech or one of his powerful men might kill him for the sake of Sarah. So he did what he had done on an earlier occasion. He declares to this king, she's my sister, opening the door for this king to say, well, great, she's not your wife. I'll take her into my harem. And that's exactly what she does. Now, we know that she actually is his half-sister. That is true, but it's absolutely irrelevant at this point of the story, isn't it? He's, he's simply doing this so they won't kill him. He's not trying to pretend like this brother-sister relationship is actually the most important relationship in this picture. He's fearful. And so this deception is actually solely for the purpose of self-preservation. And again, I think we look at this and we say, well, how is this possible? I mean, think about what Abraham had already seen. How could he walk down this path knowing what he knew, seeing what he had seen? He'd just seen God judge Sodom and Gomorrah for their sin. But more than that, this this is the God who actually called him out of Ur of the Chaldeans. He was a pagan idol worshiper. God rips him out of his context. He opens his eyes. He then reveals himself to Abraham in a supernatural way. He speaks to him. He covenants with him. He promises him. He protects him along this journey. And yet Abraham, it's like he's just got this this kind of amnesia about the whole thing. And I think it's easy to look at Abraham and say, like, this is ridiculous. I would never do something like this. But that is to read the Bible incredibly foolishly. 
Whenever we read about the heroes of the faith or, or individuals in Scripture with all of their flaws and all of their failures, the Spirit of God wants us to look at their lives and say, not look how different I am from this individual, but look how similar I am to this individual. You, you know, I, I think we could say it like this. The, the, really, the only difference between Abraham and you and me is that he's got all of his sins written out in Scripture for all of us to read about. You and I, by the grace of God, have been spared that humiliation. But here, his life is put on full display, all of the the warts and the wrinkles, the faults and the failures. I also think it's it's not difficult to relate to this struggle of stubborn sin in the life of Abraham, is it? I mean, isn't it, if we're just honest for a minute, isn't it true that every one of us has stubborn sin that just seems to stick to us like a fly on honey. It just it doesn't matter how long we've been kind of walking on this earth and even walking in the faith. There's just some sins that they just seem to keep getting a hold of us and tripping us up and, and, and we repent of them and we turn from them and then we fall back into them. Like This is kind of like, if, if you're like, I thought I was the only one who did that. No, welcome to the club. This is actually part of human life. In fact, the author of Hebrews talks about this reality in Hebrews chapter 12. Right after listing the, 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 the good things about Abraham and all the heroes of the faith, listen to what he says in Hebrews chapter 12 verse 1. He says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. You see, this passage assumes that we all have sins which they just cling so closely. Habitual sins, patterns of sins, besetting sins. Everyone struggles with these kinds of sins. Maybe to put it another way, we all struggle with bad behaviors, attitudes, Actions that we simply cannot shake. Those sins that we keep coming back to time and time again. We, we may manage our actions and feelings perhaps for a period of time, but we end up doing it again and again and again. And here we just are simply being reminded of the stubbornness of our sin. It is a part of our fallen human nature. The cause of Abraham's sin was ultimately a lack of faith in God. That's what we need to remember he, he didn't believe that God would take care of him in this new situation. Remember, God had made these promises. God declared, don't worry, I'm going to take care of you. I'm going to be faithful to do what I promised to do. But you see, like Abraham, when, when pressed, we tend to trust ourselves rather than God. I mean, generally speaking, Abraham trusted God. He believed the divine promise, and it was credited him as righteousness, as Genesis 15, 6 says. But there are times in his life, more often than he'd probably like to admit, where fear eclipsed his faith. I wonder if if you can resonate. You fear your financial situation. Perhaps you, you fail to believe that God's word is true, that 
He will not leave you or forsake you. He promises to provide for you. He says, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added unto you. And yet in those, those moments, those pressure moments, when you're seeing your bank account dwindling, you stop believing and you take matters into your own hands and perhaps even you fall into deep sin. Lying, cheating, stealing, I don't know. Or you know what the Bible says about lust and, and, and how that dishonors God and is not acceptable in any way, shape, or form, and yet the temptation is so strong, you, you fail to believe in, in moments in your life that God has promised to be satisfying to your soul, that God is enough for you, that he is better than anything that the sins of lust or anger or whatever else you can kind of put there will provide. So you cross lines that you never thought you would or you get stuck in sin that you deeply regret and are deeply ashamed of. Years ago, I read a, a, a quote by a guy named David Haig and it's always stuck with me. He, he defined faith in such a helpful way and I want you to just hear it. He says this, faith is the life-dominating conviction that whatever God has for me through obedience is better by far than anything this world or Satan can offer through selfishness and sin. That's such a great definition because it combats this idea that we're talking about here, this idea of believing God or taking matters into your own hand and trying to get what you think will provide or satisfy so how do we bolster our faith in moments of fear? I want to just give you three quick um, solutions, some ammunition in this battle. First, look back over your life and remember God's kindness and provision. You have to kind of think that if Abraham would have just paused, reflected about the faithfulness of God, how he provided, that perhaps that would have been a safeguard against this lie, this deception. Two, I want to encourage you to preach truth to yourself. It's amazing how often the scriptures kind of advocate speaking to yourself. The psalmist says, you know, to say to your soul, awake my soul. You know, the scriptures advocate being crazy, talking to yourself. Okay, it's okay, according to the Bible. In fact, good Christians talk to themselves all the time. What they do is they, they, they kind of feel temptation or they hear the messages of the world or the messages that Satan is, the lies he's spewing, and they take the word of God and they begin to preach it into their heart. They preach what's true in order to eclipse what's false and hurtful and harmful. You need to become a preacher. A preacher of righteousness and truth to your own soul. Third, remember that there are consequences for your sin. Isn't it amazing how in the moment of temptation and sin, we're blind to the consequences that may follow? Isn't it crazy? Proverbs warns about this. You're like an animal that's led to the slaughter. You don't even know what's coming. You're just so caught up with the desires of the flesh that you walk headlong into sin, not realizing that. This is what the Proverbs say. It will cost you your life. Our sin only makes life more difficult for us. We will always regret our sin. We will never be happy that we chose sin over obedience. Next, I just want you to see this. God displays his grace through the sovereignty of our Savior. 
We're going to flip back and forth between our sin and, and God's grace. And here we see God's grace in the sovereignty of our Savior. Notice what it says in verse 3. But God, there's a but God. Do you see that? But God came to Abimelech. Here's, I just pause for a minute. Here's what you need to see. Abraham is moving forward in sin, but now we see that God is sovereign over the sin of Abraham. He will not let Abraham accomplish his purposes. God's purposes overrule man's purposes every time. But God came to Abimelech in a dream by night and said to him, Behold, imagine hearing this from God, you are a dead man. Because of the woman whom you have taken, for she is a man's wife. Now Abimelech had not approached her. The relationship was still pure in the sexual intimacy sense. So he said, Lord, will you kill an innocent people? Did he not himself say to me, she is my sister? And she herself said, he is my brother. In the integrity of my heart and the innocence of my hands, I have done this. Then God said to him in the dream, yes, I know that you have done this in the integrity of your heart. Look at the sovereignty of God here, church. And it was I who kept you from sinning against me. Therefore, I did not let you touch her. Now then, return the man's wife, for he is a prophet, so that he will pray for you, and you shall live. But if you do not return her, know that you shall surely die, you and all who are yours. God intervenes here in such a supernatural way, in an unusual way. And I just want to remind you why God is doing this. This event precedes the birth of Isaac, the promised son of Abraham and Sarah. The next chapter, we're going to read about this promised son, Isaac. And so again, right here, it's as if the, the promise of God is placed in jeopardy by the foolishness of Abraham. And so what God is showing is that he will always protect his promises. Satan may take his best shot. Human beings may choose sinful paths. But nothing man or demon can do can triumph over the purposes and plan of God. This is incredibly, incredibly encouraging. God comes to Abimelech in a dream, and, and notice what he does. He exposes his sin to him, which, by the way, is grace. Abimelech pleads his ignorance, and therefore his innocence. And did you catch what he said? Lord, will you kill an innocent man? Will, will you destroy? This is, what, this is what the language is kind of reminiscent of. Will you destroy an innocent nation? Who does that sound like to you? It's Abraham, isn't it? In Genesis 18. Lord, will, will you destroy the city? What if, what if 50 righteous men are found? Will, will you destroy it then? No, no. What about 45? You, you see what's happening here is a bit of a switch taking place where Abimelech is now in the place of Abraham pleading for the innocent. So why, why would Moses try to draw this illusion 
Here's what I think is going on. I think part of what Moses is trying to communicate is that nobody should think that Abraham is a more deserving person than anyone else, including Abimelech. Just in case you think that, you know, Abraham is somehow better than somebody else or, you know, he was chosen by God to be a prophet of God and God made a promise to him and come, because he was better, hopefully that's just kind of wiped out of your mind. God saved Abraham by grace through faith. That's it. God saved him because God was merciful. He saved Abraham because Abraham believed, not because Abraham is better. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. No one, listen, this is so important, no one is saved because they're good. We are only saved because of God's grace. Amen? And it's like what Paul does in Romans. He puts everybody on level playing field. Everybody's a sinner. Everybody's in need of a savior. Nobody's better than somebody else. Nobody's more deserving of God's grace. In fact, it's the very definition of grace. It is undeserved favor and kindness. And in verses five and six, Abimelech was innocent in the sense that he acted in good faith. He acted in ignorance. He, He wouldn't have done this if he knew that they were married. And that seems to be a genuine statement. And God actually acknowledges this. He says, I know. And again, we have that statement of God's sovereignty. It was I who kept you from sinning. This pagan Philistine king in the Middle East has been protected by God from sinning. This is the grace of God. But it also reminds us that whatever power, listen, whatever power the kings of this world have, they can only do what God allows them to do. That's a great reminder. In our world, The authorities over us, whether they be human or supernatural, spiritual authorities, they can only do what God allows them to do and no more. They are on God's leash. Satan is still God's Satan. This... this picture of God's sovereignty is important for us to to learn from. You see, it teaches us that God also, listen, if God, here's what I want you to see, if God can keep this pagan king from sinning, do you think he can keep you from sinning? The the answer is a resounding yes. Now, I want you just to think for a moment that Jesus himself communicated this very idea, didn't he? When his disciples asked him to pray, teach teach them to pray, do you remember that part? Can you think of the part where I'm kind of leading towards? Do you remember what, what he said for them to pray? Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. That's God's way of saying, don't you see, I am able to protect you from sin. The moment you leave me, the moment you think you got control of your life, the moment you become self-deficient and stop depending upon me for everything you need for life and godliness, that's the moment you will bow the knee to sin and temptation and Satan. But if you abide in me, if you stay tethered to me, if you walk faithfully before me, if you pray to me, Lord, lead me not into temptation. Deliver me from evil. I will hear and answer. Can I, can I just ask you, listen, when is the last time you prayed to God, God, lead me not into temptation. God, I feel, I feel frustrated. And, and God, the kids are maniacs right now. And I'm about to blow my lid. Lead me not into temptation. Amen. We got one. Praise the Lord. 
we're, we're inclined to just let sin grab a hold of us, aren't we? And to drag us down its path like we're some helpless victim. Like Satan gives the bait on the hook and he just digs it in and we're just like these helpless fish just following along. And God's like, no, no, you gotta fight back. And let me just encourage you, church, listen. The way we fight back is on our knees in prayer, believing that God is able to sustain us and strengthen us for the battle, Amen. I want to just drive into you right now. Make this part of your daily prayer as you strap on the armor of God, as you want to live lives of holiness and faithfulness. Pray, God, lead me not in temptation. Deliver me from evil. And fight with all his strength within you. Whether sin, by the way, is ignorant or intentional, I want you to see it must be dealt with. Notice that Abimelech, he's protected by God, but he doesn't get a free pass from the consequences of sin. And this passage is going to show us that actually have been consequences that not only affect him personally, but the entire nation that he leads. In verse 7, he's told that the answer to his problem is to return the man's wife, so he's got to obey. He wants to see this resolved. He has to obey. And then notice, he needs the help of another. He needs the help of this man, for he is a prophet. And he needs this man to intercede for him, to pray for him. And did you notice the the language there? If you do not return her, know that you shall surely die. What does that sound reminiscent of? If you take the fruit from this tree, you shall surely die. I mean, there's all kinds of illusions here. It's fascinating that this pagan king responds in faith. We'll see that in just a minute. But this is the first occurrence of the the word prophet in the Old Testament. And I can't help but think what Abimelech is, is kind of... Uh, a believing or thinking as he hears that this man is a prophet of God. Can you imagine? Like you've just been lied to and deceived by this man and all of a sudden God tells you he's actually a prophet. You're like, well, what kind of prophet is that? This guy's a liar, deceiver. He's destroying my life. But you know what? Listen, I, I, again, I just, you need to hear this. You need to hear this but God moment, okay? The Lord doesn't choose people on account of their righteousness. He chooses them and then he counts them righteous. And the Lord doesn't dismiss people on the count of their sin. He chooses them, he forgives their sin, and then he chooses to use them in spite of their sin. James Montgomery Boyce he, he says this about this passage. He says, God was not indifferent to Abraham's sin. He would deal with it as he had on the occasion of its appearance in Egypt. But the sin did not change God's view of Abraham. Abraham was still a prophet. He was still God's man. And listen, I... I think so so often when we struggle with sin as Christians, it, it shakes our identity to the core sometimes. 
We begin to question our salvation. We begin to question whether or not God even loves us. We begin to question whether or not we can, can be accepted by God. That there are unbelievers who wrestle with this all the time. And if you're here today, if, if you're here today, whether you're an unbeliever or you're a Christian who's just struggling with sin, and your thought is this, your thought is there's no way that God can love me or use me or maybe even forgive me because of my past, because of what I'm doing right now, because of what has consumed my life in maybe habitual ways. Listen, you don't understand the gospel. And you're dead wrong. God is not looking for you to clean yourself up in order for you to be accepted and then used by him. He wants you to come to him in the broken, pathetic, sinful condition you are. And he wants you to get on your face in humility before him and call out for forgiveness and grace. And he wants to be the one responsible for cleaning your life up, turning you around, and transforming you into a person who is useful in the kingdom of God. That's what our God does. And the reason is actually very simple. Because at the end of the day, if that's how it works, who gets the glory? God does. If we are responsible, who gets the glory? We do. And I promise you this. Listen, God is not interested in sharing his glory with any of you or me. He wants it. Because he's deserving of it. If you think that you're not good enough to be saved by God, you're actually right. But he's not asking you today, listen, to believe that you're good enough. He's asking you to believe that he's good enough. And he is. It's the awesome news of the gospel. God is good, and he does good, and there's nothing he does that is more good, of greater good, than saving lost, dead sinners. The apostle Paul would write that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And he's asking you to embrace the fact that you are a stubborn sinner. We all are. And, and yet, in spite of that, he is a sovereign savior who can overrule our sin, our bad decisions, the brokenness and mess of our life. He can take that, he can clean it up, and he can make something beautiful and useful. Next, I want you to see that God displays his grace through the sting of our sin. Here we go, flip-flopping back and forth. We, we now get to see the sting of sin again. We've seen the grace of God and the sovereignty. But now, notice what happens here. Abimelech is going to call Abraham to the carpet. Verse 8, so Abimelech rose early in the morning. I love, by the way, there is urgency in his response. Don't you love that? It's like, I, I can't wait. I got to get this right. That's the way to deal with sin. Don't wait. The moment it's exposed, the moment the Spirit of God convicts you, the moment the Word of God just kind of penetrates your heart and your mind, respond immediately. He rose early in the morning and he called all his servants and he told them all these things. And the men were very much afraid. The fear of God falls upon them. And then Abimelech called Abraham and he said to him, What have you done to us? This is amazing. This is exactly what the Lord said to Eve after she had sinned. What have you done? It's what God said to Cain after he killed Abel. What have you done? Isn't it amazing? Out of the mouths of babes, sometimes out of the mouths of donkeys, 
and sometimes into the mouths of pagan Philistine kings, the Lord rebukes his people. And that's part of the sting of this sin. Because there's, there's the sting of, wait a second, I should have known better, and yet this person who doesn't know, I mean, they're just, they're revealing it all. He goes on and he, he says this, you have done, he says, what have you done to us and how have I sinned against you? What I ever do to you? That you have brought on me and my kingdom a great sin. And notice he recognizes that this, this is actually sin. You have done to me things that ought not to be done. Truer words have never been spoken. And Abimelech said to Abraham, what did you see that you did this thing? He's just trying to figure out, like, you're a prophet of God. Why would you do this craziness? And Abraham, listen to what he says. I did it because I thought there is no fear of God at all in this place, and they will kill me because of my wife. He didn't even test the waters to see if there was fear. He just assumed. He didn't give the guy a chance. Besides, she is indeed my sister. Okay, buddy, way to go. It's like this half-truth that he thinks is still somewhat acceptable, but you know what? In this situation in particular, a half-truth is a whole lie. She is indeed my sister, the daughter of my, my father, though not the daughter of my mother, and she became my wife. Finally, the truth comes out. And when God caused me to wander from my father's house, do you, do you notice? It's almost like uh, the Adam and Eve situation, like he's blaming God. God caused me to wander. I had to do this. Lord, this woman you gave me. Abraham's no different. That's part of the point. When God caused me to wander from my father's house, I said to her, this is the kindness you must do to me at every place to which we come. Say of me, he is my brother. You know what this text indicates? This has happened more than twice. <laughs> this is the regular pattern of how they determined they were going to operate. All right, here's a new ta town. You know the plan. Just tell them you're my sister. This is, this is the great man of faith? Ruled by fear? It's a lame excuse. Kent Hughes says that Abraham had completely misread Abimelech and Gerar. There was fear of God among these pagans. The irony lay in his heart because Abraham's fears were grounded in his own momentary lack of respect and reverential awe of God. It was Abraham who wasn't fearing God. He had exhibited, if he had exhibited, he goes on to say, a proper fear of God, he would have never lied. And what's crazy is that we're going to get a sister-wife episode three in Genesis chapter 26. Isaac's going to do the same thing. The apple's not going to fall very far from the tree. And I, th I think just as we look at this and we process this together, it's interesting because it, it seems like they almost thought that this is, they could just kind of habitually do this because it was normal and acceptable, that this, this was a tolerable sin. This, this may be sin, but it was a respectable sin. But now what they have practiced is being revealed and rebuked by this pagan king, and the sting of sin pricks them. And you know what? I think, I think it's interesting that 
It seems, at least, like this was a turning point in the life of Abraham, that the sting of this rebuke was actually used by God to change the trajectory of his life. I mean, how often does God have to bring us to a place of humiliation where the sting of sin is so palpable, it's so potent, it hurts so bad that you never want to feel like that again. And that's the only thing that begins to turn you away from your sin. We never hear of this deception again in his life, but instead what we begin to see from this point onward is this deepening dependence on the grace of God. And I just want to maybe affirm that it is okay for you and for me to feel the sting of our sin. In fact, it's often necessary. If we want to experience true change, we need to be praying that God would allow us to feel the sting of our sin, not just the sting against our own conscience, but the sting it is to the glory of our Savior. So in light of that, let me just, let me ask you, what practices do you consider normal in your life that are not actually honorable to the, to the Lord? I mean, things maybe that you convince yourself are acceptable but should not be tolerable. Things that are easy and seemingly trivial to people around you, maybe who don't know the Lord, but you know they don't please the Lord, and maybe they even jeopardize your integrity and your witness. Let me give you just three quick categories, not exhaustive, but three maybe simple areas. Let me hit the category because it's, again, in the passage, a sexual sin. Let's hit the topic of lust. How many of you are tolerating elements of lust in your life because they're not as bad as greater forms of lust or immorality? You're tolerating thoughts, you're tolerating glances, you're tolerating and every once of a while indulging in pornography, you're tolerating and you're excusing because it's not that bad in comparison to other people maybe you know. And the Lord is saying, you cannot tolerate what I have paid for in full at the cross. How about your language? From lust to language, I think this is an area where Christians, man, we, we can often begin to blend in with the world and not even realize how much we've blended in. We're loose with our lips. We can easily gossip and slander. We, we can speak poorly of our neighbor. We can speak poorly of one another, and we think it's okay. Or, or I've seen this trend in Christian circles. We can justify the use of profanity as if it's somehow okay and acceptable. Or justify the, taking the Lord's name in vain because it's cultural. Let me give you one more. Lost language and how about this? Lack of self-control. I had to really push it on the L, but a lack of self-control. I think perhaps um, this is one of the most respectable sins of all. A lack of self-control. Maybe you're tolerating this in regards to food. Maybe your temper, maybe your personal finances, maybe activities, maybe what you watch on television, maybe the amount you watch. 
And I just want to encourage you, listen, pray. This, this is about our holiness and purity, and it's about the grace of God. So pray that God would reveal these things to you, that, that your, your heart would be pricked, and that the sting of sin would actually cause a longing in your soul to change and grow and be more like Jesus, because being more like Jesus is more satisfying to your soul. It's so much better. Because we, we need to feel the sting of sin, I love that in this passage we see God doesn't leave us there. That's the grace of God. In fact, God displays his grace finally through the sweetness of our Savior. In verse 14 and 15, look at what it says. Then Abimelech took sheep and oxen and male servants and female servants and he gave them to Abraham and returned Sarah, his wife, to him. And Abimelech said, Behold, my land is before you. Dwell where it pleases you. You see, in spite of his sin, isn't this amazing? God still blesses Abraham. He doesn't write him off and say, Well, it's another prophet gone. In fact, if, if you were just to look through the history of the prophets, you want to know what you find? Many of them are a lot like Abraham. I mean, Moses is called a prophet. Guess what? He murdered an Egyptian. David has a prophetic voice in the nation of Israel. He's a murderer and an adulterer. Isaiah, in Isaiah chapter 6, when he's confronted with the glory of God in a vision, you want know what he says? Depart from me. Woe, I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips. He's like, I'm a sinner. I'm a wicked sinner. I don't deserve to be used by you, God. I don't even deserve to be forgiven by you, God. And yet, you know what God does in his grace? He comes and he, he takes that coal from the fire, symbolizing the purification from sin, and he places it on the mountain of his prophets. And God wants you to know that you are still useful in spite of your sin. Abimelech just blesses him, gives him wealth. He tells him to take whatever land, take whatever land you want. It seems that Abimelech recognizes that it's a good thing to be on the right side of Abraham and his God. Perhaps he sees that God is gracious to his sinning prophet and perhaps he will also be gracious to him. Verse 16. To Sarah he said, Behold, I have given you, your brother, a thousand pieces of silver. That's 25 pounds of silver. An extreme amount. It is a sign of your innocence in the eyes of all who are with you and before everyone that you are vindicated. There's nothing's happened. You are pure. And by the way, this is so important to make sure that the next passage, the next chapter proves that God is faithful to his promise. And then notice verse 17 and 18. Then Abraham prayed to God, and God healed Abimelech, and also healed his wife and female slaves, so that they bore children. For the Lord had closed all the wombs of the house of Abimelech because of Sarah, Abraham's wife. <laughs> there is both a stinging rebuke and sweet grace in this final picture. God is reminding Sarah and Abraham that he is the one who opens and closes wombs. Do you see that? 
He's the God who can take the, the old, almost dead, lifeless couple, barren, and he can bring life from the dead. And so it's this rebuke. They're like, don't, if you would have trusted me, you would have seen this. You didn't have to go to these lengths. I can close wombs and open wombs, but it's also a sweet reminder. Listen, I'm not finished with you yet. I haven't written you off. In fact, I'm about to open your womb and bring life from the dead for you. The sweetness of God's grace. He's the God of the promise. He will be faithful. And there's such great encouragement for us here. And I just want to maybe highlight a few things as we wrap up together that the sting of our sin helps us see the sweetness of our Savior in just five quick ways. God first exposes sin. This is the sweetness of God's grace to us. He doesn't allow us to remain in our sin. He wants to call us away from our sin. And so he exposes our sin. The word of God says, it is the kindness of the Lord that leads us to repentance. Secondly, God forgives sinners. We're all sinners. And we're all going to continue to sin until Jesus returns or calls us home. But God, right? This, this, the but God needs to be a constant refrain in your life. Whenever you're weighed down by the weight of your sin, you just need to remember, but God, he's not done with me yet. He still forgives me. Third, God uses sinners. How amazing, again, even a person like Abraham who needs to repent of his own actions can be used by God to intercede on behalf of another. What an awesome reminder, listen, that someone has probably interceded for you and that is whether you know it or not resulted in your salvation. Do you realize that? Do you realize you are probably saved today all by the grace of God, but God used means to accomplish that and one of those means was a person or people who interceded for your soul. How, listen, if we understand that and we believe God is faithful to that, how much more should we be interceding for the lost in our lives? Amen? God is faithful. Fourth, God uses sin. What you meant for evil, listen, God can use for good. It's not the end of your story. God's promises and purpose cannot be thwarted. No sin, no ruler, no power can thwart the plan of God. And five, God defeats sin. He uses us to intercede for others, but God himself intercedes for us. Isaac will be born in the next chapter. And we know that as we trace that line of the seed, we can follow it all the way to the man from Nazareth who will willingly go to the cross to pay for our sins. So that God may be just and the justifier of the godly. As Paul would write in 1 Corinthians 15, death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ interceded on our behalf as he hung upon the cross. He stood in our place. He took what we deserved. And he gives us, by his grace, what we do not deserve. And even better than that, he's interceding for you now. Hebrews chapter 7, verse 25 says this. 
Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. He who gave himself for you is alive, and he ever lives to make intercession for you. What does that mean exactly? Here's what it means. It means that he has overcome sin and death, that he is seated at the right hand of the Father, where he always pleads his blood for those who believe in him. It means that every single sin you've committed and will commit is covered in full, whether it's an ignorant sin or an intentional sin, whether it's a besetting sin, he's standing at the right hand of the Father and he is declaring, I paid for that, I've covered that, the certificate of debt has been canceled, it's been nailed to the cross, there's no more punishment, that person is mine and I am theirs, they are safe and secure in me and no amount of sin can ever rip them out of my grip of grace. That's what the gospel declares for you and for me. It means that on your best days and your worst days, you are his. You are his now if you're in Christ. And you will be his forevermore. 